Hello from the studios of Eaton Radio in downtown Washington, D.C. Welcome to Altamar. My name is Peter Schechter. And I'm Mooney Jensen, and we're glad you've joined us to navigate the high seas of global politics, this time focusing on Africa. Africa, a continent often forgotten, many times misunderstood, too frequently seen as a uniform monolithic region, and it's anything but that. Yes, it's been often fairly and unfairly stereotyped for poverty and famine and wars and dictators and weak institutions and rampant corruption. But that image of Africa, is that still true? In actuality, Africa is changing rapidly and investors, tech startups, venture capital funds and manufacturers are all starting to take notice that this country, this continent of 54 countries and 1.2 billion people is very different from what it was. And why is that? Because Africa has achieved one of the fastest and most sustained growth rates in the past two decades. Economic outlook is bright. GDP growth is estimated at 4.1% in 2020. And some stars like Ethiopia and Senegal and Kenya and Ghana are reaching a staggering 8% growth. Indeed, growth will double in just four years, a number that few countries and certainly no continents can brag about. Current forecasts are positive, surpassing other developing and emerging geographies. We'll have two great guests later on, John McDermott from The Economist and Zebenede Negatu, the global chairman of Fairfax Africa. So, Peter, it's worth a look as to where this growth comes from. And most of it is due to trade, investment and economic cooperation that occurred due to, in large part, the continent's growing political stability. Now, we can't generalize, of course, and Africa trades very little amongst itself, but they're actually in the middle of a new massive free trade agreement that is probably set to change the kind of isolation between all the countries. And growth and employment numbers have improved mostly due to increased industrial development and greater integration itself. The growing trend across African countries is also the base for long-term structural change, which we hope will create this growth in a sustained way. There are now greater cross-border investments, more integrated markets, greater institutions, hopefully greater security and decreased potential for conflict. And that's why our guest, John McDermott's Economist Special, points to the scramble to open relations with Africa. And just a number between 2010 and 2016, more than 320 embassies opened across Across the continent. So there is a growing interest. And China, of course, has taken that lead. Many believe China was a catalyst of Africa's growth and is now the continent's main trading partner and main source of foreign investment, and not just in natural resources. Factories are cropping up. The vast market is a destination for China's manufactured goods. Chinese loans, while obviously controversial, Peter, have injected vast amounts of capital into public sector projects. There is no denying that Chinese investments in all of these projects reduce commercial costs and help trade. But of course, there is always the question of the presence of China, which carries some weight and some negatives. And there's growing concerns about corruption, poor business practices, and increasing debt. So, Bonnie, I don't know how I got this bad job of doing the negative part and you got to tell all the good news. It has to change sometimes. But uh, here you go. I mean, I, I look, it's, it's all the things you said is true, are true, but there are huge challenges that remain. I mean, growth is completely uneven and the promising numbers that you see in East and West Africa, you know, are completely different from the stagnancy that exists in Southern Africa. And Political uncertainty continues to drag down economies such as Burundi and Comoros. There's, you know, huge debt that creates instability, high tariffs and logistical problems, transaction costs across the, the continent, barriers to integration abound. 
the continent has been totally unsuccessful in converting growth into actual employment numbers. And, and this is a huge problem because poverty and unemployment have yet to show any real reduction, notwithstanding all of, all of this. And the question is, will they ever show some improvement? And infrastructure, you know, Africa continues to have a demand for infrastructure, which is huge when you take into account that 100 million people are going to be unemployed by 2030. So I think that all the good news about Africa is is important and great, but Africa is not Sweden and political instability, corruption, security risks, questions about how the money is spent are all rampant, notwithstanding the fact that Africa is awakening. What's amazing is that the African continent's uh, main assets are also its main vulnerabilities, and there are external clouds on the horizon, including fallout from the U.S. global trade tensions and longstanding volatility of commodity prices. It's a region that's highly dependent on commodities for growth. It's a region that's extremely vulnerable to the prices. There are also challenges with weather and emergencies due to climate change, probably one of the most risk-dependent country on climate change, and they continue to be a constant threat to the continent. Superpower competition by China, we've talked about this. Russia and the U.S. and Africa may be a positive source for investment and market growth, but the competition also increases geopolitical tensions and turns the region into a battleground. Okay, so I think here's where we bring in our guests, but I think the question that we should all ask ourselves and ask our guests is that it's clear that the continent is at a crossroads. And the question is, will it make the reforms that are needed to continue economic growth? Can Africa really create institutions that allow African trade to expand? Should the continent embrace Western democracies? Because is the whole issue of China going to create uh, economies that foment corruption and foment lack of transparency? Too many questions, so let's bring in these guests. We're fortunate to have with us two guests today. The first is Zemedene Negatu, the global chairman of the Fairfax Africa Fund, and the former managing partner and Africa board member of Ernst & Young. And he's advised clients across Africa in various sectors, including financial services, airlines, telecommunications, manufacturing, agro-industry. Welcome to our studio, Zemedene. Well, thank you for having me. And from Johannesburg, we have John McDermott. John is the Economist Africa correspondent based in South Africa, but roving across the continent. And he recently authored a cover story for The Economist entitled The New Scramble for Africa, in which he details a positive future outlook for Africa. John McDermott, welcome to Altamont. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for being here. We will uh, we'll start with a question for both of you. And it's kind of a general question. What is the greatest challenge that Africa faces today? And what is its greatest opportunity? We'll start with John. So it's a hard question to answer. I mean, there are 55 countries in Africa and each has their own set of issues. But looking across the continent, there's a couple of big common challenges. I think the first is climate change. Africa has contributed the least to the warming of the planet, and yet it's likely to be hit the hardest. We can see the effects already, whether it's in the Lake Chad Basin or in Mozambique, Zimbabwe, Malawi, in the wake of the recent cyclone Ida. The second challenge is probably an economic one. And to put something in perspective for your listeners, in 1990, the average African and the average Asian each earned about the same. They each earned about 50% of the global average income. But today, the average Asian person will earn about 80% of the global average income and the average Af African just 40%. So that points to the fact that there has been a rising 
population on the African continent, but that economic growth has not followed sufficiently. So that those two things would be what I would point to, climate change and the inability of economic growth to run fast enough to keep up with uh, or to take advantage of rising population growth. Simon, how do you see it? Sure. I, I want to start with the opportunities and then maybe uh, at the back end, the, the challenges. The opportunities in Africa are actually multifold. One is it's a unique time for Africa to monetize its natural resources by essentially adding value. Much of the world today needs what Africa produces, but it's being exported in raw material form. So I think we have this, I think, a very unique opportunity for us as Africans to move up the value chain and create the kind of wealth that we so rapidly created in Asia. The second, I think, opportunity for Africa is to deploy its massive workforce, uh, essentially become the workshop like China was uh, for the next for the century. I think these are the sort of the big macro picture opportunities that I see. On the challenge side, again, it's the flip side of uh, not rapidly industrialization and uh, not not rapidly industrializing. That means we're not creating enough jobs. I mean, there are some data that are actually pretty scary. Uh, at the moment, we need to create 12 million jobs in Africa every single year, but we're creating a fraction of that. And in fact, if we continue at this rate, by 2030, there'll be 100 million more unemployed Africans. So I think that also needs to be focused on. So that's the challenge is creating jobs. Again, the flip side of what I just said, the opportunity is uh, we're actually deindustrializing, if, if that's the right word, uh, before we became industrial economies. So we kind of need to focus on that. Uh, but it is becoming a, a challenge because much of the jobs, much of the economic activity that is now being created in Africa is in the services sector. And that doesn't create a whole lot of wealth and service from Africa cannot be exported, or at least there's very little of that to be exported. So that means the hard currency earnings that these countries need are not coming in. So just, again, two very simple macro-level pictures, and we can delve into the details as we discuss. But let's do that. Let's delve into those details. Sure. Because I, 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 in particular, one, one talks a lot about the sort of new dynamism that's found on the, on the continent. And so what what is, but more importantly, I want to use your knowledge to do what will be the engine of that growth? What will be the engine of that dynamism? And, and, and how much do does foreign investment play? Right. Um, I want to caution us as we sit here in this beautiful city called Washington, D.C., that there are 54 or 55 countries in Africa. So we need to segment the continent and speak uh, not even by region, to be very frank. We need to speak by country. Right. Go ahead and segment. That, I think so that's let, let me segment it. So there will be, uh, frankly speaking, winners and losers. Uh, and, and the winners will be the ones who have a, a strategy to move up the value chain a strategy to be a, an Asian tiger-like economy that's led by exports. And we've seen this in our lifetime, at least in my lifetime, we've seen countries like South Korea go from being poorer than Africa to having per capita GDPs equivalent to OECD member countries. And the way they did that is by developing industrial bases, by exporting to the rest of the world. And there are a few countries who have actually focused on that. And I, I'm, I'm originally from Ethiopia, even though I'm, I'm a, a transplanted Washingtonian. Ethiopia is a very 
good example of what Africa can achieve. So if you come to Ethiopia today, you see these massive industrial parks built by the Chinese, but the investors are Americans, Europeans, and all that. They're creating industrial bases. And what it is, they're exporting right here to the United States. So I'll give you today, I'm wearing my Calvin Klein suit, made in an industrial park in Ethiopia, sold right here in Washington. The countries that would be winners in Africa would be those who have these kinds of strategies. And I see a few of them. I think Ethiopia is a classic example. I think Kenya has a good opportunity. South Africa at the high end, like they manufacture BMWs and Mercedes. But I think, so when we talk about industrialization, driving growth in Africa, we need to pick on those countries that have their acts together about moving up the value chain. The losers will be the ones who simply don't get this, that you can't continue to manufacture, export raw materials. Raw co cocoa from West Africa going to Switzerland to be produced as Nescafe is not going to cut it anymore. You will still remain poor if you don't do that. So these are the types of things we need to keep in mind uh, as opposed to saying all of Africa. Now, the last four or five years also have shown us that the commodity price super cycle um, could have winners and losers, but in the long term, dependency of commodity will create losers but not winners. So that means you need to have what's called beneficiation of raw materials. Uh, instead of exporting raw gold, now you process the gold, you process the jewelries, and essentially create wealth in your own countries. So this is what we need to keep in mind as we talk about the Africa progress. But the final point, though, is having said that, I think this year Africa will do well overall. The GDP growth is forecast to be 4%. It was 2.5% two years ago. So there are some good trends as well. But uh, you know, the challenge is also as well. Overall, though, we're optimistic about Africa. John, uh, Zinedine brought up the issue of China and in preparing your recent Africa cover story, I just wanted to sort of ask you to sort of deepen a little bit because you spent a lot of time talking about China in, in that story. And so, you know, clearly China was uh, the first to be on the, on the uh, continent bandwagon. And so uh, I guess one question is, is China now simply too strong uh, a competitor for Western companies? And, Westerners to compete. Tell us a little bit about how you see China's influence, how it has shaped the continent, and how it will continue shaping the continent. I wrote this new cover article for The Economist last week, which had the title, New Scramble for Africa. And you're right that in it, China had quite a lot of, quite a lot of words. But it's, it's probably wrong to say that it was the first, I mean, unless you want to go back to the 16th or 15th century. Um, in many ways, what it has done over the last 25 years it has echoes of, of kind of Western countries before that. In every case, they are pursuing their own interests in their own way. Uh, and what the piece I did for The Economist was, was trying to argue is that in the last 10 years especially, you've seen other emerging markets follow suit, whether that's India, or Turkey, or Indonesia, increasing not just their economic engagement with the continent, but also their military and diplomatic forms as well. But talking about China in particular, I think the first thing is we need to take a slight step back and, and ask, and what do we mean when we talk about China? Because there's a million Chinese living in Africa. There are probably 10,000 separate Chinese businesses. And even the state-owned enterprises are 
a real mixed bag, depending on kind of what part of China they're coming from. I think there's something like eight different Chinese chambers of commerce in Nairobi alone. So it's not like there's this kind of monolithic Chinese presence. That said, it's clearly the biggest single player on the continent. It's, it's, the, it's Africa's biggest trading partner. It now sells more arms to sub-Saharan Africa than any other country. But I think it would be wrong to see it solely as a, as a competitor. For a start, it's not how African policymakers see it. And they rightly kind of bristle at the idea that they are being taken for a ride by, by China. But also, it's, it's not obvious to me that everything that China does is, is automatically kind of bad for the rest of the world. If, you, if China builds an airport, then Emirates or Turkish Airlines or United or American can fly into that airport. Uh, if it builds a road, then Ford or Chrysler or Chevrolet can drive their cars down it. So I think having a bit more of a nuanced view about where it's a competitor and where it's a complement to, to other, other countries' interests, I think is quite important as we think about the role of China in Africa. John, let's talk about geopolitics for a minute. John Bolton has called Africa the place where great power competition, and I quote, will enter a new era. Is Africa becoming the right terrain for proxy battles around the world? I, I listened to John Bolton's speech, and it struck me as not really a, a, an Africa strategy so much as a China strategy. And it fit more with what Bolton and the rest of the Trump administration was trying to do or what they say they're trying to do in, in foreign policy more broadly, which is to kind of you know, frame China as being its, its number one enemy and the, the way that kind of American foreign policy should be arranged. Sitting here in, in Johannesburg and kind of visiting African states, it doesn't feel like we're in a new era of great power competition, to be honest. For a start the apparent Russian role is often exaggerated. Russia or Russians do take advantage of fragile African states and they're very opportunist. But to say they're a kind of threat to American interests is probably going too far. And as I was saying before, the, 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 you know, the so-called Chinese threat, it, it, it's potentially there in some areas, in defense technology or in certain aspects of, of kind of economic competition. But for the most part, kind of China and America are doing different things in Africa. So they're not necessarily rubbing up against each other. My my view of the Bolton speech was that he was he was kind of stretching to fit Africa into a broader neoconservative worldview, which was largely kind of uh, seen as a bit of a joke by African policymakers. Zamenade, do you want to weigh in about Africa as a proxy battle terrain? Let me just add, because you are a transplanted, as you pointed out, a transplanted Ethiopian in living in Washington, D.C. So right. one of the things that certainly was very clear from, I'm sure you read John's article right. as well, it was very clear, was the, the I mean, what we could almost call a retreat of the United States from, from, uh, from the continent. I mean, whether it's the reduction of personnel in the new Africa command mm -hmm. or whether it's literally the comparison to the investment numbers of other countries. I mean, the right. United States is just way behind. I mean, so I, I, 
put on both hats, both the Ethiopian and the and the uh, American hat. Right. So this is a recurrent topic in Africa, and obviously here in, in Washington as well. The fact of the matter is, uh, whether we accept it or you know, admit it as Americans or not, the United States has been very successfully marginalized in Africa by China. I think this is unmistakable. The numbers speak for themselves. Uh, China-Africa trade is uh, topped over 200 billion. It's now come down a little bit because of commodity prices have come down. But beyond that, the Chinese essentially are everywhere, everywhere in Africa. And then in certain of the more strategically important countries, they, it's a, they have drawn line in the sand, basically. They're saying, this is our territory. We're going to put in whatever it takes, whatever money it is. And if you look at, again, uh, in the east coast of Africa, if you look at Kenya and Ethiopia, they're part of the, the Belt and Road Initiative. If you look at Nigeria, Nigeria was the largest recipient of Chinese financing uh, in the last 15 years. So the bigger countries, and if you go to South Africa, the biggest bank in Africa, Standard, the Standard Bank, is 20% owned by ICBC of China. So the Chinese essentially are everywhere where it matters for the future. And part of the problem is that over the last 10, 15 years, as China's influence was growing, the United States took its eye off the ball. And we, we had institutions here in the U.S. that were designed for a, a world created after 1945, but didn't adapt to a, a very big superpower called China. I mean, this year, thanks, thankfully, I mean, I think President Trump, to his credit, has created a supersized OPIC. And that's good. It's a good start. But look at the amount that's been committed, $60 billion. The Chinese spend $60 billion a month in Africa if they want to. So we as, as Americans, uh, and we, are, we as an American private equity firm also, we see this every day. The U.S. is going to be even more and more marginalized in Africa because it doesn't have the tools to, to essentially compete with the sovereign-backed multinationalists of China. The guarantees come from the Chinese sovereign state. It was essentially below market rate interest rates. Virtually every large infrastructure project in Africa today is built by the Chinese. I see almost no American infrastructure companies, even in the power sector with uh, the Power Africa initiative, we don't see American companies winning much. And in the FDI front, yes, if you look at the legacy data, you still see the US and the Europeans up there, legacy data. But if you go back three years and fast forward the next five to 10 years, you'll see China up there, even in job creation, by the way, which is what is really, really important, as I said in the beginning of this of this discussion, the Chinese are creating far more jobs than any American company does. That. So when you see this, there's a structural linkages between these African countries and China, and a lot of young uh, up-and-coming African leaders are now being educated in China courtesy of Chinese scholarships. So that's why I'm saying the U.S. is being marginalized. Part of it is, was, I think we dismissed the Chinese. I mean, I was last, two years ago, I was a guest of this, uh, of the chairman of a big Chinese technology company called Huawei. All right. Now, I have to be honest with you. I was there for a couple of days in Shenzhen. When I walked out of that place, I was like, wow. I mean, if we thought the Chinese were producing inferior products, you see what Huawei is producing. And that's the future of China. And the United States doesn't have anything to counter that. And the way we're going at the moment, before we know it, much of the bigger countries in Africa uh, 
would be solidly in the Chinese camp. Yes, there will still be very significant political diplomatic influence from Washington to tell African countries to do this and do that. But the bottom line is they'll say, show me the money. And the United States is not in a position to show the money. In fact, as you've said, uh, there's a lot of cutback in the State Department funding, a lot of cutback in aid to many African countries. On the other hand, the Chinese are pumping in tens of billions of dollars every single year. They are recirculating this excess capital. So I think this needs to be factored in as we make policies here in Washington. Muni, I just want, I, I'd love John to jump in on, on this notion of the marginalization of America. I think it's real. And there's no doubt that it's pri America's primary objectives on the continent have increasingly been security ones, especially counterterrorism. Um, I mean, I think you could possibly take it too far, not necessarily the American retreat, which which does feel real, but the Chinese influence. Uh, I, th I think, you know, if you look at the latest numbers coming out of FOCAC, which is the big China-Africa summit they, they, they have every three years, there was pledges totaling $60 billion, which if you actually drill down into the numbers was a lower tally than what they pledged uh, the last time around. And that and that's in part because in, in China too, there's a feeling that some of the projects, some of the investments in Africa haven't gone as well as they as they hoped for. That all said, there's, there's no doubt it's, it is the major player. I just, I wouldn't necessarily suggest that it's, it's going to, you know, it's gonna kind of take over all of the continent anytime, anytime soon. I think we need a little bit of nuance. John, I'm Colombian and Latin America has lived what is, I think, an epidemic of corruption in the past few years. Um, in Africa, that is also an issue that has been called rampant and out of control. Could you venture to give us a report card of some of the countries that are doing better and some of them that are basically failing and, and why that is? <laughs> in Africa, it's not, to, not Latin America. Um, sure. I mean, it's... It, it's obviously a huge issue, and it's one that relates to the broader picture of other countries showing an increased interest across the continent. Because you know, there's there's no doubt that neither Russia nor China care particularly for African democracy, African transparency, African accountability, and that means that there are probably more opportunities to strike deals that may be for the benefit of African elites, but not necessarily for, for the rest of the population. I was having a look at the latest data from Transparency International, which is the kind of corruption watchdog, and there doesn't seem to be kind of huge improvements by any particular African country. Some people will, you know, a fun to point to Rwanda as being a relatively clean country where you can get things done, but one that's because Paul Kagame is a, is a violent autocrat. And, and two, it's not entirely clear to me that the regime is as clean as, as, as some people would, would want, want us to believe. Um, I, and I think all this is really important because democracy, accountability, transparency are not just good things in and of themselves. There's good evidence that the more democratic country is, the more quickly their economies will grow in the long run. 
And that's because when people can hold their governments accountable for the deals that they strike, then corrupt elites are less likely to think they're going to get away with things. So while I don't think there has been a great improvement over the last five, six years, you are starting to see, for example, in Kenya, in Ghana, in Zambia, some pushback from some of the dodgy deals that have been signed by their leaders. And that's because those countries are relatively free. And if the West does have a role, it's in supporting people that are holding their governments accountable. Let me then ask you to close us up, but I, you've talked really um, smartly about the notion that it really that Africa's growth has to center on job improvement, has to center on going up the value chain. But that's also an issue of structural reforms. I mean, and talk to us a little bit about what are the remaining structural reforms that are needed to be able to attract the investments, keep the investments that could do exactly what you described, which is to create value chains that keep the money inside right. each country. So the, the structural reforms are, are actually simple to talk about, but much more challenging to implement. So for example, significant investments are required in human capital. Uh, I use the, the Chinese model. Chinese right now, for example, looking to offload 85 million jobs out of China to the rest of the world. These are jobs that produces clothing, low-end labor-intensive jobs. But it needs African countries to be ready to accept those kinds of jobs. So I think investments in human capital, but that requires a long time. The second and most important thing is building institutions, very strong institutions. In fact, this is where maybe the U.S. can come in and the Western countries because they have very strong Fortune 500 Western multinationals, for example, come in with very strong corporate governance, right? That's what Africa needs to a certain extent. I mean, in addition to those beautiful airports and infrastructure, we need the institutions to sustain these big investments. So I think uh, building good corporate governance is both in the public sector and private sector. So because the West has already highly developed uh, in this area, I think the corporate governance uh, side of it is important. Uh, but I, I just wanted to emphasize something before we digress or close this thing up. The, the future of Africa will be bright if we are focused on moving up, as you said, the value chain. I think we, we shouldn't miss that point. Um, the future of Africa, as demonstrated by the progress we've seen in the last year or so with the Continental Free Trade Agreement, for example, because we had this spaghetti maze of regional trading blocks, very small ones, each trying to protect a small territory. As of this year, we're going to have the Continental Free Trade uh, ratified. The African Union has, has adapted it. Enough countries, except one more country now, it will be the law of the land. So opening up our marketplaces so that you build regional hubs that can go across Africa. I think in, the, in the, one of the industries, for example, that I worked in a lot, which is the airline industry, at the moment, 80% of inter, into and out of Africa travels controlled by non-African carriers because Africans have been you know, creating these, these blocks. So that means Air France and British Airways is transporting more than, say, the biggest carrier in Africa, which is Ethiopian Airlines. So these are some of the things, the structural changes that we need to, as opposed to protecting our little territories, let's collaborate. Infra regional infrastructure projects, for example, should be priorities as opposed to everybody building their own power plant in each one of these small countries. So opening up free trade, I think is key. Investment in human capital, I think is good. 
building strong institutions. I just want to piggyback a little bit about what you were talking about corruption here. For corruption to be minimized, you need strong institutions. For African governments, when they enter into contractual agreements with, say, China, I mean, I've been on, I've sat on deals where an African country was negotiating a very large deal, financing deal with China, project deal with China, and this was within the African country. Overnight, there were like 50 Chinese who flew over, and the African government side was had like five people. I mean, you can imagine just the number itself overwhelms you, but the expertise they brought for each one of those tasks. That, so I think building institutional capacity, and this is why I said the U.S., the Europeans, the, the advanced economies can help Africans. Even if they can't build the roads, they can help build good governance and institutional capacity building, both in the nascent private sector in Africa, but most importantly in, in public sector as well. John, how do you how do you see the issue of structural reforms as a one of the needed secret ingredients that have to be uh, included in order to be able to attract the investments and go up the value chain as internet has insisted. I mean, it's clearly very important, and the Continental Free Trade Agreement is is going to be really interesting because I think only you know. 10% of Africa's trade is within the continent. And if you compare that with Europe, I think the figure is 70% or, or something like that. Um, but can I, I just want to ask my fellow guest a question off the back of what he just said, because I wonder whether we're being a bit harsh on, on, on America and the like, because if, if what we're well, let me phrase it a different way. So what a lot of, uh, kind of would-be American investors might say is, well, we would like to put, spend more money in in African countries, but we don't because we are fearful of corruption and and some of the laws surrounding that. So, is it are we are we being a bit naive saying, well, you know, the West should help out with like helping out good governance. Meanwhile, China is the one that's signing all the deals. Uh, well, listen, um, there are two things here. Corruption, yes, is an issue, but I, I'm not sure that that'll be a deal breaker because there are ways of ring fencing when you when you structure these deals. Uh, the the problem is that for um, the United States in particular, because we're here in D.C., uh, its economy is misaligned with Africa's needs. We are 75% of our economy here in the United States is services. Africa really what it needs is manufacturing. Okay. Uh, so, because we don't really produce that much that we can go and invest in Africa, I think part of the challenge for, for the United States to expand this, this role in Africa, besides besides the Chinese, is um, we don't. I mean, look, uh, recently uh, I was I attended uh, an inauguration of a car manufacturing company. It's Korean, okay, in Ethiopia. There are three Chinese-owned car manufacturers in Ethiopia today. And and the German Volkswagen is about to build cars in Ethiopia. Those are, you know, the kinds of demands that we have in Africa to move up the value chain. The United States, as I said, doesn't really do much of those anymore. I mean, you know, there are few manufacturing companies here that can go and, and compete effectively. I gave you a very good example, which is rare, which is Calvin Klein. Okay? It does manufacture clothing in Ethiopia. But there aren't very many Calvin Kleins American companies that can go and set up plants in Africa. So uh, corruption is one issue, but I honestly, I can tell you 
there are tons of smart American lawyers, most of them based right here in DC, that can create <laughs> the, the framework and all that. Okay, very expensive lawyers who charge two thousand dollars an hour, who can help you create that. But I don't think those will be deal. But isn't it a, isn't it a bit unfair then to say America is falling behind if it's not? It is falling behind. No, no, but I, I mean, like, it's a fact. Like, no, I'm I'm, I'm, sli- I'm slightly playing devil's advocate here, but if the you know if America's comparative advantage is not doesn't kind of fit well with with what Africa wants. Is it is it is it fair to say? Well, you know, America could be doing more when when it seems to be what you're saying is actually it doesn't actually have the capabilities in the first place. Let me very quickly explain what I mean. There's huge excess liquidity in the capital markets in the United States. American private equity firms and firms like Goldman Sachs can deploy capital from America. So even if it's not American companies doing the airports and, and roads in Africa, they can funnel it, God forbid, through the Chinese to build these things. I mean, there we need to be creative. If we keep insisting that American manufacturing facilities have to be set up in Africa, we may not get much of it. But the capital that is needed to build these things is, is available here. The other thing, by the way, as, as, as the US policy, I think, was a little misguided, is there was a time when we needed Goldman Sachs and big Wall Street investment banks. The Chinese are actually the ones who finance our debt here in the United States. So they have their own versions of Goldman Sachs now that can come and do. So uh, we, we have to be creative how to engage. Listen, today, Africa's trade, U.S. trade with Africa accounts for only 2% of total American trade. I was sat on a panel not too long ago when an American official said, if that's all there is, 2%, why bother with Africa? I mean, that's missing the point. If we think Africa is going to be the future, even if it's 2% today, it may not seem like it's worth the attention of senior government officials here in D.C., well, then maybe 10 years down the road, that too might be 10 or 15. On a $20 trillion economy like the United States, 10% could be very significant. So that's the kind of thinking the new generation of American leaders have to have to engage effectively in Africa. I think that's a great place to leave it. Simon, they got two. And John Dermot, thank you very much for joining us in Aldemar. Thank you for having me. Thank you. So Mooney, I, you know, in a way this leaves me with more questions than answers. You know, you have the issue of the overwhelming, way too overwhelming importance of China. You have this incredible infrastructure needs. You have the problem that Zinedine has pointed out 10 times in our interview, which he clearly thinks is, is critical, which is how does Africa move up the value chain beyond just exporting raw materials? You have this incredible need for industrialization. I mean, there's just a lot of questions. But the numbers, remain- Peter, the numbers are all going in the right direction. The growth numbers, the infrastructure development numbers, the political stability numbers. And I think that it's important to look at this not just as a region, but as a cluster of countries and some very high performers that are uh, driving growth and hopefully greater equality and greater structural reforms in the right direction. And, you know, I think last, we have to mention the whole issue that was brought out by John McDermott's article, but Zemedine really pushed it home, which is that the United States is abdicating a role here. I mean, when John Bolton says this is a region of the next superpower conflict, or this is where the superpowers compete, I mean, he's certainly right that this is the region that superpowers may want to get into, but the United States just isn't. I mean, they are way behind and seem to be disappearing in whatever competition there is in Africa. Which might be even better for Africa. Benign neglect has proven to be pretty positive in other regions as well. Thank you for joining us on Altamar. See you next time. 